0: Thank you all for being here. Let's find 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to be looking at the next passage that follows where we left off last week. As you know, we've spent quite a while over the last year and more going through 1 Corinthians, and we're now at the next to the last chapter. In some ways, this is the climactic chapter that everything has been leading toward, everything that Paul had on his heart. He finally kind of pours his heart out in this chapter as he revels in the resurrection, and so we're going to do that together in just a moment. We'll be looking at verses 29 through 34, so if you need to scroll down or whatever you have to do to find that verse, we'll start with verse 29 in a moment. But let me just catch you up uh, in terms of where we are in this chapter, because this entire chapter is about the resurrection, and so far Paul has discussed the resurrection in four different ways. First of all, he discussed it evangelistic. He, evangelistically. He said, here's the gospel that I preach to you. Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. He was buried, and he rose again on the third day, according to the scriptures. This is the gospel. These three elements are the very essence of the gospel. Christ died for our sins, he was buried, he rose again. And then he discusses, the resurrection historically by giving us a list of eyewitnesses to the resurrected Lord. And we're not going to reread all of that, but he was seen by Peter. He was seen by the apostles. He was seen at one point by over 500 people simultaneously. He also was seen by his half-brother James, uh, someone who had grown up in his own household. would be pretty hard to fake it if you're with your own brother. Um, I, think I, would, you know, I think my brother would be able to detect right away if there was an imposter pretending to be me, and I think James would have detected it right away if there was an imposter pretending to be Jesus of Nazareth. And so he, he was exposed or revealed to James, and finally even to Paul as uh, the last one to see the risen Lord the actual risen Lord. So he discusses it historically. We need to remember that the resurrection we preach, the gospel we preach, is anchored in space and time the grave was empty because the body was revived or came back to life and Jesus walked among his people and then paul discusses the resurrection logically i'm looking at verse 15 or chapter 15 verse 13 in particular where paul says if there is no resurrection of the dead as some corinthians were teaching then christ himself has not been raised and so there is a logical element to maintaining our faith in the resurrection Paul, last week, we looked at this, discusses the resurrection theologically, uh, for since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection from the dead. And so the resurrection comes comes, uh, from a man, and that's in chapter 15, verse 21. But today, Paul is going to discuss the resurrection personally. That is to say, he reveals how he has been himself radically transformed through a personal encounter with the risen Christ, an encounter that left him with no doubt that the resurrection was real and that in Christ he could face death without fear. In Christ. In Christ. You, can only, you have to have that there. If you're talking about yourself and you're thinking, I want to be able to face death without fear, you have to be certain that you're in Christ. In Christ, Paul could face death without fear, which meant And this is a crucial element of all that I want to say to you today. He could also serve God without fear. And he could serve God with complete uh, surrender to Christ. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But now, with that as background, let's read today's text, starting in verse 29 of 1 Corinthians 15. Paul says. Otherwise, now you have to understand, this is the middle of an argument, and and you'd have to read the previous verses for it to make sense, make full sense, but we'll just dive in anyway. Verse 29, otherwise, what will they do who are being baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, then why are people baptized for them? Why are we in danger every hour? Speaking of himself, the editorial we, why am I in danger every hour? Verse 31, I affirm by the pride in you that I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. If I fought wild animals in Ephesus with only human hope, what good did that do me? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Come to your senses and stop sinning, for some people are ignorant about God, I say this to your shame. And again, this is the word of the Lord, and may God bless its reading as well as its exposition. I, uh, I heard uh, about a pastor recently, uh, the, an eyewitness said that uh, he heard this pastor say, May this become God's word to you which is not the same thing. The Word of God is the Word of God, whether you like it or not. Whatever it becomes to you personally, whether you accept it or reject it, it's still the Word of God. It doesn't change just on our subjective experience of it. Well, that's enough about that. Let's unpack today's text. And I want to begin with possibly the most controversial (laughs) verse in all of the Bible, verse 29. You see it there. What will they do who are being baptized for the dead? And so forth and so on. Now, at first, this verse might make it look like the Mormons are right after all. If you're a qualified Mormon, and you have to go through some hoops to be, become a qualified Mormon, you can go to any of the Mormon temples, including the one right over here in Rocky Ridge, and you can, you can bring a list of people with you, people for whom you wish to be baptized. They've already died. Uh, they were not Mormons. Uh, maybe they were even born before Joseph Smith even invented Mormonism, or, or whatever it may be. But these are people that you want to, uh, you want to be baptized for. Sometimes it's called proxy baptism. Your, some of your relatives, if you, if you want to know where Ancestry.ca and all these other uh, Ancestry uh, programs that you can take part in over the, over the Internet and so forth, these things were invented by the Mormons because they want to make sure they can trace out every ancestor that they can possibly find, of everybody they can possibly find, in order to be baptized on their behalf. So you bring a list of your relatives going as far back as you can trace your personal genealogy, you might have a list of dead presidents, although I think they've already been baptized for, and prime ministers, kings, queens, movie stars, whoever it may be, you bring this list with you, and you can be baptized in their name And then once the deed is done, the dear departed get to choose if they want to accept the baptism that was done for them so that they can then start progressing toward becoming their own divinity. That's the idea behind proxy baptism within the Mormon church. Unfortunately, that is unfortunately for the Mormons, this verse does not say what they think it says. In fact, opposition to the Mormon interpretation is so universal that, and this is important, I think, none of the main branches of the Christian church practice any form of proxy baptism. Uh, Orthodox churches, Roman Catholic churches, every form of Protestantism, and every form of separatism, and every form of evangelicalism, none of us practice proxy baptism. And in fact, opposition to proxy baptism uh, goes all the way back to the beginning of the church era 2,000 years ago, People were already writing against the idea of proxy baptism. So if it's not proxy baptism that's being referred to here, what does verse 29 mean? It's impossible, actually, to be dogmatic. One commentary has listed over 30 interpretations of this single verse. Actually, I started to include this in here. I found another reference to the possibility that there are over 100 interpretations of this verse. But forget about that. I'm just going to skip right down to the interpretation that I think makes the clearest sense in the light of Scripture. And the other thing we need to remember is this. Remember that when you're interpreting Scripture, individual Greek words, as important as they may be to people from Greece, uh, individual Greek words, I'm just kidding about that, but individual Greek words are not nearly as important as the context in which those words are found. Individual English words are not nearly as important as the context uh, in which those words are found. And so, as I pointed out to you already, we're in the middle of an argument, and that's why the the first word in verse 29, otherwise, Paul's building on what he's already said, and so I'm going to skip right to it, I'm going to tell you this, Paul's reference to baptism for the dead is probably an idiomatic expression that simply refers to ordinary baptism probably an idiomatic expression that simply refers to what you and I would think of as ordinary baptism. You see, Paul is is reminding the Corinthians that when they they were baptized, the whole point was that they had been baptized into Christ with the hope and the expectation of a resurrection from the dead. In fact, you'll recall that every time we've ever baptized someone since I've been here, what do we say? Buried with Christ in baptism, rising to walk in newness of life. We're talking about a life that is renewed on the spot in the new birth itself and that continues on forever with God because from the moment that you are born again, you are in Christ. And so baptism signifies the fact that you are in Christ in his burial, his death, and his resurrection. And so we're talking almost certainly about ordinary baptism. And Paul is reminding them of, of, of this, that they had received the resurrection as one of the leading doctrines of the gospel when they were baptized, and it was part of their full and firm belief that the dead in Christ would rise. Now, let's just play with this for a moment or two. Let's talk about some English idiomatic expressions. For example, we we'll put them on the screen here. Something you might say something cost an arm and a leg. Now, does that literally mean that you had to have one of your arms sliced off, one of your legs surgically removed in order to purchase that pogo stick or whatever it was you were, t- you were buying? You see what I'm saying? We know that it's not literal, but imagine yourself 2,000 years from now, let's suppose that English has been an utterly dead language for the le- previous 1,500 years, and suddenly you're trying to translate a 20th century or 21st century document, and you find somebody referring to the cost being an arm and a leg. That's the literal, and you say, oh, arm, okay, I know what an arm is. I know what a leg is. What are they talking about? Well, you and I understand. We just mean it was inordinately expensive. That's what we're talking about. But how about here's another one. When pigs fly. Uh, we know what that means. It's something that's impossible, never happened. But I can imagine some future uh, linguist delving into the possibility that maybe, you know, pigs once like There are some birds that they say once could fly, but now have lost the, you know, there is a parrot down in in New Zealand that cannot fly. And they say, after this parrot came to New Zealand, and there were no enemies, no natural enemies of the parrot, it lost its ability to fly, it's now a flightless parrot, and maybe that's the way with pigs, maybe they had natural enemies they had to fly away from in the past, and now, you know, uh, but now there aren't anymore, and so they, they no longer fly. And, and you can imagine how these things would be worked out, or if or somebody says, a piece of cake, and, uh, and uh, you know, a piece of cake, what, what is, well, we understand that just means it was very easy to accomplish, but uh, you can imagine somebody saying, well, how could, how could cake help them, you know, help them get their homework done so fast, or how could a piece of cake help them travel so quickly to another destination, how'd you get here so fast, It was a piece of cake, you know, whatever, but we understand what it means, but... So we need to understand, then, that this is probably an idiomatic expression, one of those expressions that means something other than the literal words would suggest. So here is, and I'm going to put it on the screen for you, here's the God's Word translation, which I actually think is the very best translation. I saw a number of commentaries that that said this is probably what it means, but this is the only translation that I found that actually said it like this. 1 Corinthians 15, 29, from the God's Word translation, and then Paul says it like this. However, people are baptized because the dead will come back to life. What will they do? If the dead can't come back to life, why do people get baptized as if they can come back to life? That makes perfect sense, easy for all of us to understand, and it's the God's Word translation. I actually... One of the reasons I appreciate this translation is because the, it, is, it is something produced by a, an organization called God's Word to the Nation's Missions Society, and uh, this English translation is aimed at English speakers all over the world, but it is especially, shall we say, pitched to those people who are from developing countries and elsewhere. They've learned English, but they haven't really you know, embedded themselves in all of the idiomatic expressions. Uh, uh, I used when I was in Cameroon a number of years ago and I spoke about being snowed under and somebody raised their hand and said What is snow? I'm not even making that up. I'm not even making that up. And uh, And so uh, you know you they, they've pitched this translation to people who speak English, but only as a second language And it's an excellent uh, resource that you can find at Bible Gateway among other places. So um, it's an excellent resource so The first thing I wanted us to see then is just to get that verse out of the way and see that it makes sense in English when it's translated with some respect for a Greek idiom. So, second point I want us to make, though, is that the certainty of resurrection made Paul fearless. Do you see this? Remember, Paul is speaking personally about the power of the resurrection in his life. And so he raises the point in verses 30 and 31. He says, why are we in danger every hour? Why am I personally willing to submit myself to real physical danger every hour? I die every day. Now, what we need to understand is that Paul is saying that every day he lived with the risk, his life was in constant danger of being, of, of, of being lost or that he would be killed for the gospel. And you have to understand in this verse he's talking about actual dying not merely dying to self. I mean, Paul did die to self, and he does teach that we ought to die to ourselves in other places, but here he's talking about actually being killed. And then he references being the fact that he fought wild animals in Ephesus. Now, some people have thought that might be that he was in the arena, actually fighting against lions and tigers and bears. Oh, my. But, but uh, anyway, uh, probably not, probably not, because Paul was a Roman citizen and it was actually illegal to cast a Roman citizen into the arena. Those who fought in the arena and were cast in the arena for punishment were not Roman citizens. It's likely that Paul is speaking of Jewish opposition to his preaching of Jesus as the Messiah. Wherever Paul went, Jewish opposition often led to his being beaten and imprisoned, Um, and it's 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 clear from the book of Acts that He really faced a lot of Jewish opposition, specifically in Ephesus. You can read about that in chapter 19 at some other time if you'd like. Nevertheless, Paul persevered because he believed in the resurrection, and thus he knew that his labor in the Lord was never in vain, not in vain. But that leads to a rhetorical question. I'm going to paraphrase verse 32. Paul says, What's the point of me constantly risking my life if there's no resurrection, no eternal reward for the risks that I'm taking. If there is no resurrection, then why bother to sacrifice yourself for the world to come? That's the point Paul is seeking to make. You might as well just spend your time enjoying life. And he references a passage from Isaiah where God is speaking sarcastically and and speaking angrily toward the Jews. And he he references the fact that in those days these Jews were saying, eat and drink because tomorrow we will die. As someone has well said, if men but persuade themselves that they will die like the beasts, they soon live like the beasts too, just living for the next feed, for the next food, uh, drink, whatever it may be. You see, you can always tell when people no longer believe in the resurrection. And how is that? They really do focus on the issues and the pleasures of this life. So let me raise a hypothetical question for you to deal with, if I may. What would you do? Don't answer out loud, but just think about it. What would you do if you knew for certain that a nuclear bomb was going to destroy Calgary, say, tomorrow at this time, 24 hours from now? What would you do? How would you spend those last 24 hours? What do you think a lot of other Calgarians might do? People outside the church, people you work with, whatever. I'm going to suggest that faced with the stark reality of death, people tend to respond fundamentally in just a couple of ways. One is either to get right with God, or the other is to get drunk, I suppose, to spend as much time as they can just immersing themselves in the pleasures of this life, clinging to them up to the very last moment. But here's the problem. We forget that although death may not be forced upon us in the next 24 hours. God forbid that it should. Nevertheless, it is certain that this life will end somehow. This life will end. Either Christ is going to return and bring time to an end, or we're going to die at some point, one or the other. There's no getting out of this world alive. So even though the choice is not necessarily as stark and immediate as a nuclear bomb tomorrow morning, It is always a stark choice that lies before us, always is. And our responses are still the same. Now again, because it's a slower, you know, death usually comes to us more slowly than than something like a bomb. Death comes to us more slowly, and so our response may not be as obvious, and yet they are still the same. Either we spend our lives risking everything for Jesus, living for Christ, as the Father has sent me, so send I you, living for Jesus or else we spend our lives living for ourselves, one or the other. So now we come to Paul's exhortation in light of his own example, where he says, don't be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. I'm looking at verse 33, of course. Now this was a popular saying in Paul's day. We know that because it actually is a statement out of a a play by a Greek poet named Menander, People argue whether Menander coined the phrase, bad company corrupts good morals, or maybe Menander was quoting an earlier poet named Euripides. And no, I'm not going to make any jokes about Euripides' pants either. I'm just going to move right on. But um, either either way, it's Paul's way of saying that we become like those with whom we associate ourselves. You see that? If we associate ourselves with people who doubt, we'll become doubters. If we associate ourselves with people who believe, we'll become stronger in our faith. If we associate ourselves with people who serve, we'll be serving people. If we associate ourselves with those who seek only to be served, we'll become selfish like them. We become like those with whom we associate ourselves. And practically this means, if you spend your time hanging out with people who constantly find fault with God's Word, who constantly doubt the truth of God's promises... Those doubts will soon enter into your own soul. Or, as the God's Word translation puts it, associating with bad people will ruin decent people. Hmm. So, brothers and sisters, I think we owe it to ourselves, or I could say more precisely, you owe it to yourself to cling to people who strengthen your faith in God's Word. Not those who would weaken it. And forgive me for putting this in the form of a kind of last word to you, but I want you to hear my heart. I I vow that I'm not going to spend a lot of time in these last sermons that I get to preach to you. uh, You know, kind of filling them up with famous last words, and you know, and you got to hear this. Don't ever forget this. But this is one. I am gonna I'm gonna let myself just go for a moment or two, if I may, and speak from my heart. But here's the problem that I I think we face in light of this expression that bad company corrupts good morals or associating with bad people will ruin decent people. There's a growing number of modern Bible scholars, many of them calling themselves evangelicals. We have to remember this. They seem to live for the purpose of tearing down people's assurance that the Bible is the Word of God and that it can be trusted not just to contain truth, but it can be trusted because it is truth. And the sad reality is too many evangelical seminaries are filled with these kinds of teachers, which means too many of our seminary graduates in terms of truly believing God's Word, staking their life on the Word of God as they preach, as they serve, as they teach, whatever they're doing, ministering, however they're ministering, they're basically hamstrung before they graduate. Now, under such teaching, they lose what every Christian ought to receive as part of their birthright into the faith, which is absolute confidence in God's Word. So, dear friends, if pastors are trained by men who lack total confidence in Scripture, then it should be no surprise that they cannot then pass much confidence on to their people. Now, some of these teachers are not so obvious that they can be easily spotted. But there are certain tells that give them away. The reason I put it like that is because they will actually affirm, if you ask them point blank, do you believe the Bible is the infallible, inerrant word of God? They'll say yes. But in their mind, they have a thousand qualifications to that yes. So let me explain these tells that give them away. For instance, some of them constantly compare biblical writings to other ancient texts. And they'll say things like, this is just like that. For example, these four Gospels that we find in the New Testament are just like a lot of other ancient biographies that tend to exaggerate their subject's best qualities. That's one example. I could cite names, I'm not going to waste your time right now with that, except for one one exception to that rule that will come up in a moment. But there are other examples of such doubt starters. Things like um, the book of Revelation is just another piece of apocalyptic uh, literature, the kind of thing that was popular in Jesus' day. Or everybody knows that Many of the numbers that are given in the Bible are so large that they must be exaggerations. And they're referring to such things as the number of Israelites that left Egypt when they left to go on their journey to the Promised Land. Or, or they'll talk about the number of, you know, they, again, they'll talk about various numbers that relate to the, to the armies that Israel fought. And whether it's the large number that came against Israel or the, or the extremely small number of soldiers on the Israeli side or the Israelite side, They'll say these numbers are exaggerated for effect and things of that nature. It's impossible to have that many soldiers on the field in those ancient days, or whatever it may be. Or they'll talk about the number of people who were baptized at Pentecost—three thousand people. There wasn't enough water in Jerusalem to baptize three thousand people. That proves sprinkling is the way they did it. Well, I don't know, you know, I don't know, but I'm just, I'm just, saying they're always seeking to, you know, the, to, to draw us away from a full wholehearted faith in God's word. Here's another confidence killer. Uh, thanks to modern science. Now don't misunderstand me. I love modern science. I love air conditioning. I love you know central heating. I love electricity. I love modern science. I love medical advances. I, I, I love all these things. I love science. But science is one thing and speculation about origins and endings are another thing altogether. Let's keep that in mind. So, thanks to modern science, we now know the earth is so ancient, that is, billions of years old instead of thousands of years old, that there must be huge gaps in the biblical genealogies. Nobody contends against the idea that if you add up all the genealogies that are found in the Old Testament, you're going to find that Adam and Eve lived about 4,000 years before Christ. Uh, 4004 BC was what Bishop Usher said, and the fact is, nobody's quibbled with his math based upon the genealogies that are found in the Old Testament. But then they start saying, but obviously there must have been huge gaps in those genealogies because obviously mankind has been around a lot longer than that. But I'll tell you where that really hurts my heart. Because they find the gaps in the genealogies, they then say, there's no way that Luke could trace Jesus' earthly ancestry back to Adam in Luke chapter 3, as he so evidently does. Again, pulling away from our faith in God's word. Or they'll say something like, because evolution must be true, there's no way we can believe in a literal Adam and Eve as founders of the human race. So what does that do to Paul's contention, as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive? How are we going to deal with that if there wasn't actually an Adam to bring sin upon the human race? Another way to suck the faith right out of Christians is to employ a reductionist approach to the gospel. That is, All we need is the resurrection to prove the divinity of Christ. We don't need the virgin birth. We don't need all that Old Testament stuff about the coming Messiah. It's time, and now I'm quoting from a very prominent preacher, Andy Stanley, as a matter of fact. That's the one exception I'm making in terms of warning you off from listening to certain people. But Andy Stanley says, we don't need the virgin birth. It's time we unhitched ourselves from the Old Testament. I'm not even kidding. And yet I remember what we saw at the beginning of this chapter. Paul says, here's the gospel I preached unto you. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And then he was buried, and then he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. In other words, without the context of the Old Testament, Christ's death and even his resurrection would be as meaningless as any other resuscitation that might have occurred in ancient times or modern. Who cares? One more person who died, one more good bit of good news that his friends could say, oh, he didn't really die, he merely passed out, and they were able to resuscitate him. He was suffering horribly, but he, he got through it and came back to life, you know, really kind of, kind of stood back up again and so forth. But according to Paul, our understanding of the significance of the Messiah... His life, his death, his burial, his resurrection is all of it rooted in the Old Testament according to the Scriptures. One last way to plant seeds of doubt. You can hear people, you can hear, you've heard people talk this way. Times have changed, culture has changed. Therefore, Scripture has nothing relevant to say anymore about oh, male female relationships, sexuality, modesty, personal holiness. We're in a different world now, so we don't have to pay much attention or even any attention to what the Bible might say about these things. I could multiply examples of how so-called believers subtly tear down faith in God's Word, and some of you are thinking, well, you've already multiplied examples, but we'll leave it at that. Here's the point I'm trying to make. You and I need to cling to the people who uh, who will increase our confidence in God's Word people who increase our confidence in God's Word and the basic truths of the Christian faith. Cling to those who are genuinely seeking to live holy and separated lives for Jesus' sake. Those who are ready to live sacrificially in this life for the purpose of deliberately laying up treasure for the life to come. Run away from those who decrease confidence in Scripture and who give free reign, or at least freer reign, to the desires of the flesh. Paul really wasn't kidding. Bad company corrupts good morals. It really does. So we have to make a decision who we're going to listen to, who we're going to spend our time with. But now I'm going to verge as close to being unacceptably forthright as I ever do. <laughs> You'll remember that, it was it last week, I think, that Pastor Sig said, you should not want your next pastor to be a carbon copy of Schaefer Parker, of me. And I completely agree with that. He said the right thing. That was exactly right, Pastor Sig. I agree. You don't want a carbon copy of me. Please don't try to find one. Uh, hopefully no other carbon copy exists. The world is suffering enough. And, um, <laughs> but uh, so, so, so don't look for a carbon copy. And I know that there are good men who love God's word, who have gifts and, and so forth that are far beyond anything I've ever possessed. And I'm, I'm grateful for that because I'm looking forward to hearing how much better the new pastor is. And um, it'll be interesting who says that to me first. But no, no, I'm just kidding. I'm just <laughs> kidding. So I totally agree with what Pastor Sig said, but I do want to add one thing. However, different your next pastor is, be certain that his inner conviction, that his, shall we say, automatic or even autonomic response or reflex, is to always strengthen your faith in God's Word, in God Himself. Hear what I'm saying. I'm well aware of my shortcomings, both in the pulpit and in other forms of other areas of ministry. I'm well aware of that. But one of the things that I seek all the time is that whenever people are are in relationship and fellowship with me, God help me to always leave them with a deeper commitment to God's Word, with stronger confidence that wherever the Bible speaks, God is speaking, that God is still speaking to his world today. And I pray that the next pastor you have has the same spirit in this area. Lots of other things, he he ought to be different, but in this area have the same spirit. Now I want to close then with two um, illustrations and and an application, if I may. And the first one is this. I recently heard a clip from Dr. Adrian Rogers, a longtime pastor at Bellevue Baptist Church in Memphis, Tennessee. He's been dead for about 13 years, but you can still hear his program, Love Worth finding, finding. It's a, a radio teaching time based on the sermons he preached in the, in the past and so forth, and you can still hear it in, uh, on one of the radio stations here in Calgary. And so uh, I was listening to a clip of, of one of his messages, and by the way, may I say that one thing I love about Dr. Rogers, he and I differed theologically on a few things, even a few significant things, but one thing I loved about him and still do is that he had that spirit about always strengthening your faith in God's Word. And, and it occurs to me to say this, it is impossible to strengthen other people's faith in God if your faith in God's Word is failing. They go together. Your faith in God's Word, your faith in God cannot be separated and Adrian Rogers believed in God and he believed in God's word. Anyway, in the clip Dr. Rogers was relating a conversation that he had with a Romanian pastor shortly after the collapse of the, of the, uh, the Iron Curtain back in 1992. you remember all of a sudden the Iron Curtain fell and East Germany was freed and all Hungary and, and uh, what was then called Czechoslovakia, it was freed and other nations were freed and, and Romania was one of those companies, the countries that became free and, So Dr. Rogers was in Romania, and he was visiting with a Romanian pastor who previously he had invited over to Bellevue Baptist Church and had introduced him to America and to American Christians and so forth. And he said, okay, he said, you've visited my church and you've visited America, now I'm visiting you here in Romania, and I'd like you to explain from your point of view what is the main difference between American Christians and Romanian Christians. The Romanian pastor said, as I understand it, almost immediately replied, I can describe the difference in one short phrase. Surrender versus commitment. He said, you Americans talk about committing your life to Christ. But in Romania, we speak of surrender. And the difference is this. With commitment, you remain in charge of your life. Commitment can be given and withdrawn. That is to say, I commit to teach this Sunday school class for this year. But the year is over, I now withdraw my commitment regarding future Sunday, Sunday school classes, or whatever it may be. I commit myself to helping with the Awana program for a year. but Or until my, and this is the one that I've observed, and hear me carefully, this is an observation that I think ought to concern all of us. It's just a, an observation about life. I'm not, I'm not angry or bitter about it. I really am not. God knows my heart. But I've I've noticed that there are a number of people who will commit themselves to a children's ministry program until their children are beyond that age. Then they'll commit themselves to a youth ministry program until their children are beyond that age. And then they sit back and say, we've done our bit. They were committed. They really were. And during the time they were doing their bit, they were doing a good job. But now we've done our bit. Commitment means I can extend the commitment, I can withdraw the commitment, and feel that my conscience is clear on all sides, in, in all ways. But hear me carefully. The Romanian pastor went on to say, with surrender, you give your life away. You give your life to God. Jesus becomes Lord in the ultimate sense of the word. I just want to say to you then, that the promise of resurrection makes surrender possible. What do you think Paul was doing when he was fighting wild beasts in Ephesus? Probably angry men, but whatever, whether it was wild beasts or angry men, whatever, they they had power of life and death over him. And he was fighting these people. And he was dying daily. He was risking his life. He was allowing himself to be stoned and left for dead. He was allowing allowing himself to be beaten with whips multiple times. He was allowing himself to suffer on any number of occasions. And he just, as God gave him strength, got back up again and kept on going because he had not made a commitment to Christ, he had surrendered his life to Christ. And that comes through in today's text, if you're looking for it. So from this passage then, it's obvious that Paul was completely surrendered to Christ as Lord. In his baptism, Paul surrendered himself to Christ and he entered into the life of his Lord. As the Father has sent me, how did the Father send the Son to suffer and to die before he rose again? And so Paul surrendered his life to Christ. He surrendered himself to the point of being ready even at, at any moment even to die if his life in Christ led him to that point. He surrendered himself not to the pursuit of worldly things but to the pursuit of God. And the promise of resurrection is what made that surrender possible. So that's one illustration. This other one, is I kind of think of it as current events because it's something that happened right now in this year of our Lord 2018. It's from a newsletter. Some of you may have read this already. It's from a newsletter that was sent to a a lot of supporters from Yost Pickert, formerly a professor up at... uh, Taylor Seminary, and now one of our missionaries that we support from Hawkwood Baptist Church over in Papua New Guinea, or Papua Indonesia, I'm sorry. And so here's, I'm quoting, I'm just quoting from the newsletter. In May of this year, 2018, in May, a couple of days after the bombing of three churches in Indonesia, I was at a retreat with a heavy police guard and undercover police circulating as members of the retreat. During one session, the head of Indonesia's Protestant churches drove home the reality of being a follower of Jesus. Now he's quoting the native man who is the head of Indonesia's Protestant churches, and here's what the man said. Remember that when you get baptized, you are entering into a type of contract that may include a life of suffering with our blessed hope only promised after this life. want to know how the people who live in Muslim predominant countries Muslim dominated countries how do they live for Jesus they live with a death sentence on their heads and they gladly accept it that they're willing to suffer and die with him so that they can be raised with him in the life to come remember that when you get baptized you are entering into a type of contract that may include a life of suffering with our blessed hope that is of resurrection only promised after this life That's the end of the quote, and then Joost Pickert says, this life of suffering is something many of us assume should not be part of the present Christian experience, and yet is included in the contract. God never hid it in the fine print. Would you bow your heads, please? And this is a time for self-examination. We're not talking about those momentary failures. We're talking about the overall tone of your life. Is it characterized by surrender? To the Lord, I give you my life. Take it and use it as you please. As I say, there are subsidiary issues that could be raised. What about the whole point of the people you hang with? The people you're most comfortable with, because as I've tried to point out, whether you know you have 24 hours left, or whether you comfort yourself with the thought that you still have 20 or 30 or 40 years or more left, you can see by the company we keep where our where our real affections are, and it has to do with the books we read and the programs. I don't even know what they call them anymore. Programs we watch, even the games we play. Are we hanging out with people that strengthen our faith, that encourage us to service, that cause us to be glad in the Lord as their joy, shall we say, overflows into our lives? I'm not going to spend a lot of time berating you over these things because. For, in fact, many of you don't need berating. I, I just rejoice in the people who serve sacrificially here at Hawkwood Baptist Church. But in a day like ours, when the foundations that used to shore up the churches, these foundations are crumbling all around us. And we're going to have to make hard and harder and harder choices. We're going we're to be, in a sense, uh, legislated right back to the first century where we have no more rights than first century Christians did in the Roman, under the Roman Empire, where we're going to have to stand for Jesus at the risk of our lives, just as our brothers and sisters already do in so many nations around the world. And so the question is, what are you getting ready for? Are you Are getting ready to side with the world or to stand with Jesus, to surrender yourself to him? Lord Jesus, we've looked at your word. I pray that by the Holy Spirit, That word has spoken in transforming power to our hearts. Lord, help us day by day to surrender our lives to you. I pray this, Father, for your glory, and in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.